Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt, taking back the mic. And this is The Argument. Today. We're making sense of the 2018 midterm elections. The Democrats won. They won many more votes than the Republicans. They retook the House. Most of the country rejected President Trump. Despite all those things, we won. Today, I think the people of Kansas really spoke, and they spoke so loudly. And yet there were also some big disappointments for Democrats, and a familiar theme to those disappointments. Across rural America, Democrats are continuing to get hammered. God bless Texas! Earlier this evening, I called Mr. Ron DeSantis and congratulated him. Uh, I sincerely regret that I couldn't bring it home for you. It happened in Florida, Georgia, Texas, Missouri, Indiana, North Dakota. So what does it all mean? Michelle Ross and I will be talking about all of that right now. Let's start with this. How's everybody feeling? I feel relieved and yet disappointed. What about you, Michelle? You know, sort of the same. And I am gutted by Andrew Gillum's loss. You know, I held out hope for Beto, even though I know it, knew it was doomed. But there is a lot to feel good about. It's just that these candidates that so many of us were so emotionally invested in all lost. How are you feeling, Ross? I'm feeling great. This is the best day for never-Trump Republicans since Marco Rubio won the D.C. primary. (laughs) (laughs) This is exactly the scenario that you wanted and urged Republicans to vote for, right? Yes. Um, And so it would be poor form of me not to be happy about it. Um, I think, you know, look, there's... There is another world, an imaginary world, a fantastic world full of rainbows and child tax credits where Donald Trump tried to be a good populist president and tried to move the Republican Party where I think it ought to go towards the economic center basically and didn't just rely on his sort of – Trumpishness to hold to hold his base. Racism mostly. That world didn't doesn't exist. And in the world we're living in now, I don't want to be ruled by you and Michelle. No offense. You're nice people. Some Um, some offense taken. Some offense (laughs) taken. And um but I also think Donald Trump needs some sort of check on his worst impulses, his tendency towards personal corruption at the very least. And we've got that. And the Republicans keep the Senate and they get to keep doing the only thing basically that the National Republican Party is any good at, which is appointing conservative judges. And for the long term, too, if Republicans don't become the party that I want them to be, I mean, they had a good night in the Senate. They had a very favorable map. And that means that they have a good chance of holding the Senate even if Trump is defeated in 2020. And from my perspective, basically, it's a stalemate, right? And there are better things than stalemate, but there are also worse things, and I'm happy to take it right now because I think 
neither party is really well positioned to be the governing party that America actually needs. But one party is the majority party, right? I mean, and I think that this is where we're coming up against these tensions that I know conservatives like to poo-poo the idea that there is such a thing as a House popular vote or a Senate popular vote. And we'll point out that there was supposed to be all these counter-majoritarian mechanisms in the Constitution. But because the country is so divided and because you have a very clear majority for the Democratic Party If you do take the popular vote seriously in the Senate, in the House, in the presidency, if they keep getting thwarted by this minority group whose values are increasingly anathema to them, who are increasingly people that aren't opponents but who just feel like spiteful enemies, um, who are, you know, now appointing a bunch of judges who are going to thwart the will of the majority for a generation. I mean, I do think the system is combustible. And, you know, if there ever was a real movement, a real popular movement to dissolve it or to really radically change it, I would be 100 percent on board with it. Before you respond to that, as I'm sure you will, Ross. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't have any thoughts on that, David. I think I, you can feel this. <laughs> I guess I want to point out a couple numbers. So the best estimates are that the Democrats are going to win the popular vote by about seven percentage points. There's still a lot of late votes that are going to be counted on the West Coast. But when you look at them, that's the best estimate at this point. A seven percentage point popular vote win in a national election is basically what Barack Obama did in 2008 over John McCain. It is substantially more than Barack Obama did in his re-election in 2012. It's much more than Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by in the 2016 popular vote. It's a big popular vote win. It suggests that Donald Trump is in very weak condition for his re-election. If you take last night's vote in a presidential election, it is a clear Democratic victory. And that has gotten a little lost, right, amidst all the Democratic disappointments in in the state-level races. And and I just want to... Right, but but the problem, just just quickly, the problem now is that we're at a place where the map is such that, you know, last time he lost the popular vote by 3 million, he actually could lose the popular vote by 7% and in some versions of the map still remain our, you know, dubiously legitimate president. Sure, but there is... Plenty of good news for Democrats in the states that Trump flipped on his Mm -hmm. narrow inside straight path to the White House, right? I mean, to me, the signal failure of the Trump presidency is that even as he was alienating suburban voters and especially suburban women who delivered the House to Democrats, he was failing to consolidate the real gains he made in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and so on. And you see that, I think, in most of the results last night. You don't quite see it in Ohio where Mike DeWine, the Republican nominee for governor, was able to win in spite of polls showing he probably wouldn't. Ohio does seem to be trending more towards becoming just a purple to red state. But the results in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and also a state like Minnesota, which had sort of come close to flipping for Trump, the results in Iowa where the Democrats did very well, they all suggest that the party can be reasonably competitive in the Trumpian Midwest and that if you have a Democratic nominee who doesn't sort of ignore those states and assume they're in the bag – It's not, you know, Trump would basically have to get extraordinarily lucky to sort of pull that kind of inside straight again. It's not impossible, but it's not something I think that Democrats should spend all their nights sweating. They should be thinking about, okay, we can win the Midwest. How do we do it? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't I don't disagree with that. I'm not, you know, spending my time meeting with revolutionary cells to overthrow the United States. You know, that's at least four years away for me. But um the counter-majoritarian tensions in our politics 
given the deep divisions and antipathy, are going to be increasingly combustible. Let me just make sure that we all agree about this. The Democrats won by such a wide margin nationally, including in the Midwest, as Ross points out, in the states that essentially elected Donald Trump two years ago, because most Americans don't approve of the job Donald Trump is doing as president. Do we all agree about that? Yes. You know, th- so I've had this, I've had conversations with progressive men, you know, even in some cases, men to my left, who did not experience Donald Trump's election as just like a mortal emotional blow. I mean, I often say it was the worst thing that I've ever endured. Um, you compared it on an earlier episode to being sexually harassed at work and having the no, harasser let me, named no, your let boss. No, let me say the only thing that I've ever experienced that's come close was a second trimester miscarriage. I mean, and that and I, and that was it was that level of grief. And and women I know have felt that grief in a in a far in, more intense way than men who, you know, might, you know, the men I know, they hate Trump, but they have a little bit more emotional distance. And, you know, one of the places that I have paid a lot of attention to is the Georgia 6th District. You know, I was in a really dark place after the election. And the first time that I felt like sort of okay was when I went to Georgia to cover the John Ossoff race. So this is a very red district in the suburbs of Atlanta and Democrats port all this effort into trying to elect John Ossoff over this anti-abortion activist named Karen Handel. And the women in that district were throwing themselves into politics. And I wondered afterwards, you know, how long can they keep it up? You know, so I went back there recently and believe me, they had kept it up. And right now it looks like that district looks like it is going to be won by an African-American gun control activist named Lucy McBath. And it's because of both Stacey Abrams' coattails, but also because of the infrastructure that was created during that Ossoff race. And I feel like that has lessons all over the country, right? I mean, people are now saying, well, you know, was it a waste to spend all that money on Beto O'Rourke? No, that infrastructure remains and people are going to people are going to build on it. Well, so so look, I I think, though, that this raises one of the important questions for Democrats, though, about this victory, right? Because I I agree with Michelle, um, even though I think that having that reaction to Trump's election is a mistaken way to approach politics. But that's an argument we can have another time. I think the challenge for Democrats is that they have won this in part just as a personal repudiation of Trump, right? That people don't like Trump for all kinds of obvious reasons, and they turned out and mobilized against him. And it was a really good night for mainstream Democrats, especially mainstream female Democrats who are anti-Trump. It was not, however, a particularly good night for the other facet of the resistance, which is this idea that the Democratic Party needs to become much more progressive, needs to take on big sweeping ideas, needs to mobilize new voters in large numbers and just sort of write off rural America. And it was a bad night in the sense because if you look sort of up and down the board, the Democrats in the House, the candidates who endorsed Medicare for all didn't do particularly well. Republican governors were returned in blue states, basically a reminder that lots and lots of voters who like Democrats in blue states aren't up for basically state-level Medicare for all bills and other sweeping progressive legislation. So I think I think the Democratic Party on the evidence of this race, uh, on the evidence of this election, is going to have some internal tensions between the part of the party that 
wants to claim the Trump era as a mandate for progressivism and the, I think, bigger part of the party that just wanted Trump repudiated in politics to sort of go back to an Obama-era normal. I half agree with that and half disagree. And I think my half agreement will actually get to a place where, Michelle, you and I disagree. So the part that I disagree with is if you look at ballot initiatives, Medicaid expansions passed in red states um, like Nebraska, Utah, Montana, Idaho, effectively, based on the results that we have. Minimum wage increases passed. Voter rights initiatives mostly passed, including the reenfranchisement of almost 1.5 million people in Florida, which is a really big deal. So I think there's a fair amount of evidence of progressivism that in, in the country that we see in this election. But where I agree with you and where I think I disagree with Michelle is if you get outside of metropolitan America, Democrats got thumped. It didn't matter whether they were Beto O'Rourke-type Democrats or whether they were a Bill Nelson moderate Democrats. And I know there are a couple exceptions, but they got thumped in Ohio. They cough, got thumped. Cough, Joe Manchin. Cough. Wait, so there I, are a wait, couple but exceptions, no, but, 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 but they lost in. Exceptions. There are important exceptions, but there are exceptions. The, 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 getting Is the whole state of there, Iowa and Kansas exceptions? Maybe, but but here's what I would say. Getting hammered outside of metropolitan areas cost the Democrats. And, get, and, and, and let me flip it as well. The fact that Republicans do so well in those areas, allow Republicans to win. The Ohio and Florida and Georgia governor's races allowed them to win the Florida Senate race, allowed them to flip Democratic Senate seats in Indiana, North Dakota, Missouri. And so to me, I look at this and I'm not sure I agree with you, Ross, that that there isn't still basically a center-left American majority on policy. But I do think as much as I think that Trump's race baiting did play a role, I do think Democrats need a way to win more votes in those areas than they've figured out so far, because otherwise the Democrats can't win the Senate. And all the things that you and I care about, Michelle, climate change legislation, attacking inequality, ain't going to happen if Democrats don't have the Senate. Just a quick clarification before Michelle tells you why you're you're wrong. I think I agree that from the point of view of the two parties, Americans are basically more center-left on economics. But I think there's a big distinction between votes for Medicaid expansions, which are sort of already part of the normal order of the welfare state. They've been things we've been debating for five or ten years. There, I'm not surprised that voters favored them. And the bigger things that major Democrats have been talking about for the last few years, Medicaid for all, jobs guarantee, these sort of big picture progressive ideas, those are the ones that I think the evidence of last night suggested it'll okay. be harder for Democrats to push those than a lot of progressives want to believe. Okay. So, you know, in some ways, this question is all sort of abstract because I think that one thing that we've learned from this race is that the best candidates sort of bubble up from the bottom, right? And so... They don't really emerge from people having strategy sessions about who are the best candidates to run in, you know, to run in these areas. I'm not sure that anybody who was sitting around, you know, a spreadsheet would have said, you know, the real candidate to make a breakthrough in this in in the Kansas suburbs is Sharice Davids, a Native American lesbian mixed martial arts fighter. I totally had her on my spreadsheet. (laughs) She is. And, you know, I mean, I thought she was going to win, but I just mean she wasn't the person that you would dream up if you said, you know, how are we going to make inroads in in the Kansas suburbs, right? So there's something to be said for the kind of small D practice of democracy that Indivisible and all these new groups, you know, they're elevating candidates from their communities, you know, sort of irrespective of what strategists think are going to work. I think the, the challenge for Democrats is that, sure, you want to win Florida, although part of me wishes Florida would just 
sink off into the sea because I don't know if I can go through another election worrying about the late vote from Broward County. And to be honest, I think that Florida going forward is going to be a much different state because people voted to reenfranchise 40 percent of the African-American um, male population that had criminal convictions. So but here's the challenge. If you want to go after some of these white rural voters who are very conservative on cultural issues, who are motivated by a lot of racial resentment, who are motivated by a lot of hostility to immigrants, it is not entirely clear to me that you can do that without alienating the people who actually vote for Democrats and who are actually responsible for the party's vitality and who are actually, you know, the kind of key to an enduring um, and, and growing coalition, which is suburban women, ethnic minorities, and particularly young people. You know, that's that's the heart of the party, and that's what you have to build on. And there are things that you can offer people in some rural communities to join that coalition, which we saw in Iowa, we saw it in Kansas, and we saw it in these states of the Rust Belt. But many of them voted for Barack Obama at least once and often twice. And I guess I think, I do look at this, and I look at a Senate that now is much further out of reach for Democrats. It makes all kinds of things much harder, including Supreme Court for Democrats. And I think, yeah, I want the Democrats to figure out a way. They don't have to win rural America. They just have to stop losing 80-20. And if that to me means them starting to think about, do we need to talk more about immigration enforcement? I'm fine with that. But are you you fine with that if that then demobilizes young voters, demobilizes Latino voters, demobilizes some of these socially liberal suburban women voters? I don't think the Democrats pro-immigration position right now mobilizes a lot of people on the left. Look, if it did, I don't think Donald Trump would be president. And I think Democrats would have done better in this election because Donald Trump is so odiously anti-immigrant. And so to me, the idea of not the racism of Donald Trump, but talking about the fact that, hey, we are not a country with open borders. Thinking, I don't know if immigration is the right issue. Maybe it's abortion. But but whatever it is, I think abortion it's has more It's definitely not abortion. Well, but, so let's talk about abortion for a second, though, right? Because like in Texas, presumably one reason that Beto O'Rourke did as well as he did, and I will say he did better than I expected. I thought he would lose by five and he lost by what? Like Looks three. like three. Looks like three. And he obviously had down-ballot effect. One reason he did well was that he won a lot of women who used to vote for Republicans. And in Texas, if you're a woman who used to vote for Repub- a Republican, you're probably at least somewhat evangelical and at least moderately pro-life. So your new female coalition, Michelle, already includes some lukewarmly pro-life voters. So we- it's not just you know, the very liberal pro-choice suburban women. It's also the moderately pro-life suburban women. We really have to dig into those numbers because Texas has a lot of kind of old school Republican matrons who donate to Planned Parenthood. And I mean, it just has a lot of them. That's true. But well, let me give you a different example that isn't abortion, right? The felon disenfranchisement thing that I would have voted for, and you guys are both hailing, I think, as a good move for Florida. Lots of the same people who voted for Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis voted for that. They voted for a piece of legislation that dramatically empowers black men in Florida. So people are complicated. I know people are complicated. So, I mean, the reality is it's just every state and every landscape is different. In Montana, you get someone like John Tester, who is more of a libertarian figure, right? I, I just think there have to be ways for a Democratic Party that, in order to do any of the things it wants to do, has to figure out how to win back the Senate to actually experiment further. And I guess I would add to that, and I think this might be the heart of the disagreement. 
I don't know exactly how they should do it, but not only am I comfortable with Democrats thinking of ways to move toward the center, I think they probably need to, to avoid getting hammered from North Dakota to Indiana to Georgia to Florida. Right. Whereas I guess my view is that the way it's not necessarily moving to the center, but that there is a lot of people who are conservative on social issues, but relatively liberal on economics who want more state help. And that's the piece of that. That's the place where Democrats can potentially appeal to some of them. And I think that that's the place that they have appealed to some of them in the states of the upper Midwest that they're winning back from Trump. And, you know, here's the thing. I was thinking the other day about this time when I was standing on the corner of Bleecker Street and a crazy homeless man laughing maniacally came up and and punched me in the face and left me with this big bump on my head. God. If he was on the ballot against a Republican, I'd vote for him. I mean, they can run anyone and I would vote for them. So He has a strong (laughs) Michelle punching platform. Right, which actually probably has bipartisan support. Um, Not among our listeners. (laughs) So, you know what? If somebody really thinks it's true that compromise on these issues that are dearest to my heart will somehow get us back to a majority, do it. I agree. I guess I'd just like to see some authentic Democrats emerge from purple and red America who actually are are to the right of coastal Democrats on immigration and other issues. Well, and to, and to me, I, I mean, you know, we're talking about this in terms of the Democrats, but obviously there's another political there is party, another party that I that I have some vague desire to see be better than it is today, and that's the Republicans. And to me, part of my desire for a Democratic Party that competes more effectively in red and purple states is precisely that I think it would force Republican politicians away from the kind of campaigns that Michelle was vigorously critiquing a minute ago. I think the best possible thing for our country would be for Republicans to be effectively forced into competing more fully for black and Latino and Asian voters. And that doesn't happen so long as Republicans feel like they can keep the Senate with their existing coalition, even if that coalition is, as it clearly is, insufficient to to hold the House and maybe and maybe win the presidency. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back to talk about some of the less noticed things that happened in this week's elections. around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash gamesapp. 
And we're back. We want to talk about some of the things that were beneath the headlines. Midterm elections have so many thousands of results that it's easy to miss nearly everything except the main story. But a lot of important stuff happens. And we're going to do that by talking about one thing each that we are happy about and sad about. I'm going to start with sad because it's always better to end on happy. I am sad that racism was not repudiated really at all. As you two know, I was in Hungary last week. Hungary is a country with a really autocratic government that is one in part with these viciously anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic and anti-Roma messages. Donald Trump closed with a campaign ad that was so racist that most networks wouldn't run it. Including Fox. Including Fox. You had Republican candidates running photos of Jewish candidates grabbing money. They didn't do that with a lot of non-Jewish candidates. And I really wished that this message had been decisively rejected throughout the country. And instead, it's sort of a mixed message. And not only that, but if you're looking at this from an amoral standpoint and you're a Republican, it's hard not to say, hey, you know what? Donald Trump's closing message of xenophobia worked quite well in Indiana, in Missouri, in North Dakota, in Georgia, in Florida, in a list of states that depresses me because it's so long. Ross is going to tell me not to be so sad. I don't think you should be so sad because I think the list is a lot shorter. I I think that like the – a lot of the states that you just listed are states that had a strong Republican lean to begin with where the election was determined more by the fundamentals and to some extent the controversy around the Kavanaugh vote. You can be sad about that if you'd rather but I I don't see any evidence – in poll movement, for instance, that Trump's closing, you know, gambit by sending troops to the border had any effect on the North Dakota Senate race. Either way, I think the message is the opposite. I think if you look at the Midwest, all these places where Trump flipped Democratic strongholds last time around, there's been all this sort of Vox.com style analysis that purports to show that this just happened because of racial anxiety and racial appeals and Trump's populism had nothing to do with it. Well, we've had a Trump presidency that's been weak on economic populism, strong on racialized appeals. And guess what? The Midwest mostly swung back towards Democrats. So if I'm a Republican strategist, yeah, maybe in states like Florida and Georgia, where there's this intense demographic change. There's this strong older white population that's nervous about it. Maybe in those particular races, you could say some of these appeals worked. But if you're looking at the broad map, I don't think that's the lesson for Republicans. So I'm actually going to sort of agree with Ross. Damn it. Um, yes. <laughs> Victory. <laughs> it, I mean, Chris Kobach lost, right? Chris in Kansas. Co- Chris Kobach lost. In Can- and, and part of what happened is that some people lost so definitively that we don't even think it was a big deal, right? Like Corey Stewart, who ran, you know, this kind of despicable neo-Confederate campaign in, in Virginia, lost so decisively that it was called the second the polls closed. But I don't know if that was a four-year-ordained conclusion that Virginia was a safe seat for Democrats a year ago. You know, again, Chris Kobach lost. Anthony Delgado, who is an African-American Democrat running in upstate New York, who was the target of a lot of racist attacks from the incumbent, nevertheless, you know, won that district. So I think I think the record is mixed. I think that, you know, kind of Trumpist-style Racism and xenophobia is really effective in the Old South, and it's really effective with um, older white voters who are upset about demographic change. But I think it also 
boomerangs in a lot of other parts of the country. Okay, I'm a little less sad. Uh, I am I am happy about voting rights. I feel like it was a really good night for voting rights. So the biggest thing by far is the reenfranchisement of everyone in Florida who has a felony record. They can now vote again. But it's not just that. Michigan passed redistricting reform, which makes gerrymandering harder. We have automatic voter registration in Nevada. We have election day registration in Maryland. And so basically what I think we see is a real movement toward the idea that it should be easier to vote, not harder. And in the long term, I think, yes, I think that's narrowly good for Democrats, but I mostly think it's good for democracy. And I'm really happy about that. And I please, in other states, I want to see people get those kinds of things on the ballot. I think it's good for Republicans in the long run for the same reason I said in the first segment, that the Republican Party needs to be forced to compete for minority votes. It's possible. It does it in Texas already. And this thing where the party is basically afraid of high voter turnout is bad for Republicans and bad for conservative policymaking, whatever that's supposed to be in the long run. Republicans, listen to Ross. You should be in favor of voting rights. Michelle, what are you happy and sad about? You know, I mean, I'm... Michelle, what are you happy and sad about? I'm really sad that Andrew Gillum, the Democratic candidate for governor in Florida, and Stacey Abrams, the Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, look like they're losing, uh, both because I thought they were really inspiring candidates. They were also running these campaigns that were sort of proof of concept for what I still believe will ultimately be the Democratic strategy for victory, which is to sort of, you know, rely on the emerging Democratic electorate, a coalition of ethnic minorities, urban liberals, and um, urban and suburban women. You know, and it. I thought that they were both going to be able to do it. You know, these are both two African-American candidates who we thought, especially in Andrew Gillum's case, you know, we thought was going to win this historic victory. And they lost after, you know, kind of viciously racist campaigns. You know, maybe one lesson of this is just never expect anything from Florida. I'm sad about that, too. And I, and I particularly, I expected Stacey Abrams to lose in Georgia. But boy, Florida was so unbelievably close. So, you know, I'm happy about women. I've been banging on about this since the aftermath of the 2016 election, that we were seeing this huge upsurge in women's political engagement. You know, and so I had hoped and now believe that, you know, women might yet save this shithole country. Ross, on that note, <laughs> what are you happy and sad about? Um, I'm just I'm just contemplating the island to which irascible males will be exiled once women <laughs> save the country and whether I can make myself There'll the be re-education maybe chaos. I can make myself the king of it <laughs> acquire a conch shell early on and sort of break some people's glasses and go from there you'll miss us when we're gone we bring spice to life um, no so I'm sad because in the course of Democrats winning the house which I was fine with a lot of pretty decent Republicans got knocked off while a lot of less decent and more ridiculous Republicans, because they were in safe seats, held on. The obvious example is that Steve King, who's become sort of an, an embarrassing flirt with white nationalism, the congressman from Iowa. I think Iowa, he's married it. Yeah, he, uh, I agree. He, so he, so he, he held on barely. I would like to see 
you know, the the next flood of Beto O'Rourke style money from Democrats, I think would be better, would be well served targeting someone like him because he looked more vulnerable than people expected. But he survived while uh, Barbara Comstock in Virginia got knocked off easily or Carlos Corbello, um, a smart Hispanic uh, Republican congressman from South Florida, who was one of the few Republicans in the House to actually sponsor a carbon tax bill. He lost so you just have a kind of brain drain in the Republican House caucus that's the inevitable price of losing a lot of swing seats in a in an election like this. I share your worry about the extremism of the caucus, but I would mourn those Republican members of Congress much more if they had shown just a little bit more courage in standing up to Donald Trump. Barbara Comstock in Northern Virginia was nicknamed Barbara Trumpstock by her opponent, and that's because she basically voted with Donald Trump. And so I just feel like... I want there to be Republicans who stand up to Donald Trump, but I'm not sure I'm going to mourn the ones who didn't actually do it. Well, so that provides a good pivot point to what I'm happy about, which is, well, a, a couple a couple Senate outcomes that sort of point in, in different ways. I'm happy that Mitt Romney was elected to the Senate from Utah. I don't expect him to lead a revolution in Republican policymaking or anything like that. But I think he's, one, genuinely a good man, and it's good to have good people in the Senate. Two, I think he... You know, he is obviously a Trump critic of some kind, however much he sort of hedged here and there. And unlike a lot of Trump critics who basically became Trump critics when they were on their way out the door, right, Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, and so on, he's actually coming into the Senate. He has six years in Utah. If he wants to run again, he's probably guaranteed reelection no matter what happens. And so if we get into a situation where Trump does something that needs Republicans in the Senate to act patriotically against it. I think Romney is a plausible leader. I don't think he's going to come in and deliver what progressives want, which is someone who votes against Trump on issues unrelated to Trumpian excess. I think that's sort of generally an unreasonable progressive expectation. But I think on, you know, some of the xenophobic stuff that we've been talking about, for instance, I think I, I would expect Senator Romney to say appropriate things when Trump says inappropriate things. So there you have it. Michelle and I are relieved and disappointed or disappointed and relieved. Uh, Ross is mostly happy. Gleeful. No, mostly happy. No, uh, I'm never I'm never. Gleeful. All right. Let's <laughs> leave it there. Last week, we talked about the gender divide in American politics, and we asked you listeners to call in with your thoughts. So many of you did so and left us thoughtful responses that we wanted to play a few excerpts now. This is Cherry Crockett. Uh, I'm a listener in Maryland. Um, for a party that claims to be so inclusive, it's really hard to be included in the Democratic Party. I definitely am a Democrat now. I did not used to be until the Republican Party went crazy. Uh, but I find that there's, there's this sense that you can't even talk to other people in the party because they're so adamant about certain things. And if you don't fully agree with them, they just write you off. And we need to really walk the walk of inclusivity, not just talk it. Ross, my name is Matthew. When Michelle says that it's only the Republican Party that has defended, if implicitly, political violence, it's just not true. You have Hillary Clinton, who has been the nominee for one of the major political parties, saying she cannot and Democrats should not be civil with the opposite political party. And I think we sometimes live in an echo chamber where we can't see beyond the end of our nose 
And we forget that the world and the political climate is complex. I don't know what the answer to toxic masculinity is, but I am relatively certain that it's the responsibility of men to figure that out together, not women. Our question for you this week is what lesson should each of the parties take from the midterm results? Call us with your thoughts at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. Or email us at argument at nytimes.com. We're back, and it's time for our recommendation. This week, it's my turn, and I'm recommending The Baths. I was in Hungary, Budapest, last week, and I went to two different baths, public baths. I went to an Austro-Hungarian-era bath on the outskirts of the city. I went to a Turkish-era style bath. So what happens is you check in, you pay a modest amount of money, they give you a key to a little locker, then you go out and in a communal way, you sit in extremely hot water and you relax. And my recommendation this week not only is to tell our listeners and to tell you, Michelle and Ross, to go to baths, but to tell the United States we need more baths. All kinds of cultures have these baths. Finns have their saunas. Jews have their schwitzes. Koreans have Jim Jilbong. Greek and Romans have their baths. Japanese have sentos. And what's great about these is that they bring people together. People are not looking at their phones. They're not looking at their desktops. They're relaxing. They're not even fully clothed, although they're enough clothed that it's not awkward. That, that was going to be my, <laughs> my main question. Yeah, I did not go to any of the loincloth baths. I went to the bathing suit baths. There are some... The Times wouldn't... The expense account wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't spring for the loincloth. That was more a choice that I made personally rather than worrying about the expense account. First of all, it's just... It's a wonderful sensation to have hot water. It relaxes you. But it, the communal aspect of it is really neat. I mean, there was a dad there with his two daughters um, on one side of me, and on the other side of me was a couple on a date, right? And so I realize it kind of sounds weird and awkward, but the awkwardness of it is part of the beauty of it. No, I mean, we should probably tape an episode of The Argument <laughs> from from a, from a bath. There wouldn't right? be enough arguing. We'd be too relaxed. We'd be too relaxed. That's right. Yeah, and there might not be many of these in D.C., but there are some really, really good Korean baths here in New York. There are. Have oh, you yeah, been? Absolutely. I don't go to a Korean bath, but I go to a place um, that has the steam room, the sauna, the hot tub, the pool that you can kind of do in a circuit. I've never been to You've the never baths. Been to do you a say bath. the baths? Do, do you go to the baths? I mean, my experience baths? with this is now like a week old. I've been to so. Bath, Maine, but it's not, it's not quite the same thing. But I, I mean, Honestly, David, you had me at Austro-Hungarian. If it's it's Habsburg, I'm there for it. And I'm interpreting this as sort of a a crypto endorsement of Viktor Orban's regime. No matter what you may have said, it's preserving the baths, David. It's the fact that Budapest still has good things even with the autocracy. Right, the kind of like little cosmopolitan reminders of a former imperial civilization. Yes. That does it. Congratulations to everyone for surviving midterm week, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media with help from Caitlin Pierce. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. 
We had help, as always, from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, and Ian Prasad Philbrook. Brad Fisher is our technical director. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We will see you next week. It's a wrap. Do I get coffee as a reward? I think I do.